is from Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Let's open our Bibles and read that now. After the sermon, we will respond with the singing of hymn 23, stanzas 1, 4, 5, and 6. So Matthew 5, starting at verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The sermon I'm reading this afternoon is from the hand of Pastor Keith Davis, minister of the Linwood United Reformed Church in Linwood, Illinois. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, every Palm Sunday we celebrate the occasion in which Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Our Bible refers to this event as the triumphal entry because thousands of people who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover welcomed Christ's entrance into the city, waving palm branches of victory. Why were they directing such tribute to Jesus? It's because the, the people believed that Jesus was really the promised Messiah. His raising of Lazarus from the dead, after Lazarus had been entombed for four days, seemed to have been the sign which won the people over. Also, Christ's appearance was in full fulfillment of Zechariah 9, verse 9. Your king will come to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So when people saw them coming, they swarmed out of the city and shouted, Hosanna, which means, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, Jesus welcomed the praises of the people, as misguided and directed as those praises were. But what was lost to the crowd was that Jesus was not the kind of king that they anticipated. The salvation which Jesus came to provide was not exactly what the people had in mind. Likewise, the kingdom which Christ came to establish was not what they expected either. For Christ came to Jerusalem not to gain glory for himself by being exalted to an earthly throne in some lush palace. Rather, he came to gain glory for himself by being lifted on high to a cross at a place called Golgotha. It was from that cross that Israel's king would provide salvation. It was from there that he would secure his kingdom. It was from there, by way of his cruel suffering and death, that he would bring glory to himself. So what does all this have to do with the salt and light of Matthew 5? It has much to do with it in every way. In the first place, it reminds us that Jesus expects his church to live in the world just as he did, to be in this world, but not of this world. Secondly, we're reminded that we have a place in this world to have a positive effect, a powerful influence and impact on this world. No one man had greater influence on this world than Jesus Christ himself, and that was because he was God's own son. But now, just as Jesus prayed, the spirit of God's own son lives in us, and we in him. And as his own disciples and believers, the church is called to identify and embrace her role and calling in this world. 
Just as Jesus lived to testify the glory and truth of the Father, so too does the church. And that is what being salt and light are all about. So we consider God's word together as Christ calls believers to a redeeming influence in this lost world. And we will notice in the first point, the world's desperate problem. And second, the church's redeeming role. So first, the world's desperate problem. Congregation, when Jesus says that we Christians are salt and light, he's not only saying something about us, but he's also saying something about the condition in the world in which we live. And we want to focus on that first. First, in regard to salt, Jesus can be implying one of two things, or possibly both. Salt was commonly used in Bible times, just as it is today, to, to flavor and to season food, making it more palatable and appetizing, which is to say that to God, the world is tasteless, it is bland and unappetizing, wholly and, and entirely without flavor. Have you ever eaten food like that before? Eating bland food gives us no enjoyment, no pleasure, no delight, or satisfaction in the meal. Imagine eating dinner this afternoon and our food has no taste. We can't really enjoy the meal then. It's just like eating when we're sick. When nothing tastes right, it just isn't the same. And that's the point that Jesus is making about salt. Salt provides flavor, making meals palatable and pleasurable. And this analogy to salt makes sense because people who do not believe in God live their lives without giving God any pleasure or delight. Their lives fail to give God glory, honor, or praise. And their lives are anything but palatable and flavorful and satisfying to the Lord. But salt also has a second major purpose. Salt was also used as a preservative for meat to keep it from rotting and decaying. We're not as familiar with this attribute of salt today because we all have freezers to keep our meat fresh. But in Jesus' day, when fish were caught and when meat was freshly butchered, they would always pack that meat in salt to keep it fresh. The salt would draw out the excessive moisture and thus keep the meat from spoiling. So if this latter use of salt was intended by Jesus, then he was saying that the world was dead, subject to decay, corruption, rotting, and spoiling. So either way, whether Jesus was emphasizing the use of salt as a flavoring influence or a preserving power, the basic idea is the same. Without the presence of salt, the earth is an awful place to be. Jesus also mentions that the church is the light of the world. The purpose of light is rather straightforward. Light enables us to see our way in an otherwise dark place. If we lived in Jesus' day, we would light a torch or a candle for the purpose of providing light in a dark place. For us, it's easier. We merely flick a switch or turn on a flashlight and instantly we have light. So in this regard, Jesus was implying that the world around us is immersed in darkness. The people of this world stumble about blindly in the darkness. They are hopelessly lost, void of any real direction. We even sing about the sad condition of the world in our hymns, saying how the world is benign, it's stooped in ignorance, overwhelmed by darkness. Now, beloved, for you and for me, do we understand and agree with these findings? Yet, as we know, there are plenty of people in our world who are just blind enough, just ignorant enough to deny these truths and believe that man is really an enlightened creature. 
Sociologists would have us believe that man is an ever-evolving, ever-changing, ever-improving species, and that despite our ugly episodes and occasional setbacks, we're still ascending the evolutionary scale. As far as salt is concerned, people are quick to point out that even those amongst those who are not practicing Christians, there are still millions of people who do good in this world. Millions of people who make personal sacrifices for others. There are many who sacrifice their own lives for others. Many who dedicate their lives to spreading love and kindness, goodwill in their neighborhoods, trying harder and harder to make their little corner of the world a little brighter and a little saltier. So how do we respond to that? We respond with what God's word teaches us about the pervasive power and lethal influence of sin in people's lives. Consider what Jesus himself said in John 3, verse 19 through 20. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who hates the light, or everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. In Romans 1, verse 21, it says that though sinful man knows God, he refuses to glorify him as God or give him thanks. Instead, his thinking is futile and his foolish heart is darkened. Going a bit further in Romans to chapter 3, we find the well-known passage where the Holy Spirit chronicles the effects of sin on our entire being. From head to toe, sinful man is full of disease, death, and decay. He is corrupt, or it says, or as it says very directly in chapter 5, verse 12, when sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, we all died because we all sinned. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus that in order to be saved, we need to be born again. It's because that man's condition is beyond critical. Man is little more than sick and diseased. No matter how kind and loving and thoughtful and good-hearted a man or our neighbor might be, if they are of this world, they are dead in their sin, lost and blind. If they are of this world, there is nothing that they can do to make their lives more savory to God. There is nothing that they can do to escape the darkness of their ways. So this is the commentary in which Jesus provides about the world in which we live. The world in which he himself lived. Now understand, Jesus was not saying this to be pessimistic. He was actually being realistic. And Jesus was not saying this to be condescending or judgmental about the world. Rather, he was saying this with the best intentions and interest of the world in heart and at mind. After all, Jesus Christ himself was the light of the world who came into the world so that those living in darkness could see a great light. And was not Jesus also the salt of the earth, sent by God to accomplish the work of salvation, providing satisfaction for sins, so that the Father might call him unto himself a remnant, a multitude without number from every tongue, tribe, and nation in the world? And by redeeming and sanctifying work of Jesus Christ. Men's lives are made palatable and pleasing to God. So, beloved, when we consider the sad and lost estate of this world, we must not do so with hatred or scorn, gleeful derision or disdain for the people of the world, in a sort of devil-may-take-them attitude. 
Jesus didn't think that way, and he doesn't want us to either. The people who, in the world who live in unbelief are sinners, just like us, in desperate need of grace. They are sinners walking in darkness who need the light of Christ to shine on them, to illuminate their foolish hearts and darkened minds. They are sinners who need the salt of Christ's righteousness to arrest the spoil and decay within them, to purify their hearts, so that their thoughts, words, and actions are palatable and pleasing to God. Beloved, we really need to work harder on this score because it's so easy for us to turn our backs to this world when we hear of all the shooting, maiming, killing and stealing, the rape and the molesting that goes on, we want to stop caring and pray that the Lord would come and dole out his punishment upon the sinners and reward the righteous. Yet, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus sent his church into this world for a purpose. And so long as he tarries, so long as it is day, that purpose remains. Our calling persists. And what is that calling? That's what we will consider in our next point, the church's redeeming role. Congregation, let's take a moment to look back at our passage and consider the context. Verses 3 through 16 of Matthew 5 come right on the heels of the Beatitudes, and this provides us with very uh, valuable perspective. The placement of these verses teaches us that the godly virtues in which Jesus spoke about in verse 3 through 12 are not designed to be practiced in isolation from the world. The virtues, the disciplines of the Christian life, like humility, meekness, mercy, and making peace, they are not only meant to be exercised here in the fellowship of believers, in the Christian community, but they're also designed to be put into practice out there amongst the unbelievers in the world. You see, when Jesus speaks about his church, his own children living as salt of the earth and light of the world, he's not presenting us with a new teaching, with a whole new way of life. Rather, he's merely basing these words upon what he has just said. Jesus has already provided us with everything we know to be a powerful influence in this world. By showing meekness, we communicate to the world that we Christians are not proud, We're not puffed up, holier than thou. Rather, we are gentle, mild, patient, and trusting. We're willing to sacrifice for others. We're willing to serve in whatever way we can. We are calm when inconvenienced and treated unfairly. Seeing that redeems the dead and dark world. Likewise, when we truly hunger and thirst after righteousness... When we're merciful and pure of heart, we show by our righteous deeds, we show by our sanctified living, by our pure speech, our kind deeds of love and mercy, that we love the Lord and that our religion is real. That is the God we serve, and that the God we serve is the only true God, and he holds a central place in our hearts and in our homes. Seeing that also redeems a dead and dark world. 
And when we live as peacemakers in this tumultuous world, when we are willing and gladly suffer the mockery of fools, when we turn our other cheek to the one who wrongs us, when we refuse to let anger and hatred and malice and envy well up within us, when we answer criticism with a gentle response, when we endure persecution and rejoice with rejoicing and gladness, that too redeems a dead and dark world. In essence, beloved, Christ Jesus has called us to live out what he, by his word and spirit, has worked into us. When Jesus called for his church to be salt and light of this world, he's not asking us to do anything more than what he has expected from us from the very beginning, to be faithful to him, to walk in obedience towards him, to be unashamed and unafraid to live for Christ in a world that rejects the light and spits out the salt. So no, this is nothing new. Yet it needs to be said. And we need to hear it again, and again, and again. And why is that? Because, as I said only moments ago, as Christ's church, we have a tendency to forget our calling in this world. We have a tendency to become useless to God. And that is exactly what Jesus is warning us about when he says about salt. If salt loses its saltiness, can it be made salty again? And when he says about light, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. In both cases, Jesus is warning the church against being ineffective and useless influence in this world and for his kingdom and for his name's glory. Congregation, because of the proximity to the Dead Sea, the entire region of Israel was rich with salt and salt deposits. Chunks of salt, like rocks, would literally wash up on the Dead Sea shore, and these chunks could be collected. But before that salt was good for use, the outside layers had to be shaved away. That's because, the outside, uh, that's because chemicals and elements that surrounded the salt blocks on the outside layers made it tasteless and therefore useless. That's what Jesus means. If salt loses its saltiness, if it's defiled by the surrounding elements, it's loses it, it loses its power to purpose, to season, to flavor, influence, and preserve. It's of no value at all. Now apply that imagery to a Christian living in this world. If we Christians lose our saltiness, if we allow ourselves to become defiled, weighed down, bogged down by sin and evil, caught up in temptation, swallowed by lust and desire, then we have lost our power of influence. When a Christian husband defiles his marriage, when he treats his wife with, wife with contempt, or when he's unfaithful to her, he loses his power of influence in a world where adultery and infidelity run rampant. We lose our saltiness. When at work or on the highway or on the athletic field or at the grocery store or on the phone, when we engage with an unbeliever in a war of unsanctified words or in a show of uncontrolled anger and rage, we lose our power of influence. As salt, we not only lose our power to influence others in this world, but when we defile ourselves with sin, our behavior has become unpalatable and unpleasant in the face of the Lord as well. 
And if we continue to abide in our sin, if we continue to lose our saltiness, the Lord will treat us like the lukewarm church in Revelations. He will spew us out of his mouth. As far as light is being concerned, I think even the little children here can understand that analogy. Light, by its very nature, is designed to shine. It's designed to be seen. So says Jesus, his church in this world is to be a light set high upon a hill, visible to all, lighting the way for all to follow, shining the light of Jesus Christ for all to see, both far and near. And just like salt, light requires that we live righteous before the Lord. As Paul writes in Ephesians 5 verse 8, In Christ we are the children of light, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. We are to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is light that makes everything visible. That's why it says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Christ's light is within us. It is designed to be seen by others, not only by means of our righteous deeds, but also by our words of witness. When we are put in a position to say an edifying word about Christ, or to point the way to Christ, or to defend his name but fail to do so, we're hiding that light under a bushel. If we're too fearful or reluctant or too timid to do a good deed, to shake a neighbor's hand and speak a good word, then we're not letting our light shine. Jesus said, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds, our lives of holiness, our loving hearts, our positive attitudes, our kindly speech, that they may praise your Father in heaven. In other words, being salt and light, God is pleased to use us to bring the lost into a saving relationship with him. God is pleased to use us to wake the dead and to shine his light on a dark world so that more and more lives may be seasoned by his love, made palatable and pleasing to the taste. God is pleased to use us to make the light of Jesus Christ shine in men's hearts, minds, and souls, piercing their darkness, chasing away the dark deeds of the sin and evil, Beloved, this is why we are here. This is our role, our calling. So as long as we are in this world, let us be faithful to the Lord. Let us be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, for God's glory. Amen.